what a gorgeous day for for this um, Earth Day community building gathering out here with jazz, incredible jazz um, out on the on the Great Great Highway Park. This great event, Earth Day event on the Great Highway, is an example of, of the amazing community building that's been happening out here on the Great Highway, and so that's just been so inspiring to see. And um, and I think this really what, what's happening here on the Great Highway is is really an important part of our of how we can address our climate crisis right now. Hello out there. Hello, audio listeners. Hello, audiodes. Audiode 52. These 50s are interesting. They feel very feel mature. We're in the 50s. We're just, it's a whole different deal. The 50s. And relaxed. I feel like audiodes are wearing stretchy pants now, almost perpetually. And sweatpants and sweatshirts and hoodies. Um, not shaving as often. I feel like audiodes are kind of relaxing into this new, interesting I'm, time. I'm that I'm, I hope everyone's okay with that. I'm, I'm enjoying it. It feels, it feels nice to me. Or maybe that's just me projecting myself onto audiodes. Maybe I am feeling that. It is true that I am wearing sweatpants a lot. On the tour of the East Coast that I just did, I almost only was wearing sweatpants. I would wear sweatpants for sound check. I would wear sweatpants while I had my dinner in the green room. And then about 10 to 15 minutes before I played, I would put on pants. And that was kind of a nice ritual. It's like you put the pants on and it's like, okay, let's let's get get focused here. Uh, Some exciting stuff to report on the western front of the war on cars there's a war on cars we won a huge victory in san francisco that i've been part of a team of activists and advocates that have been working on this for two years yeah it's the two-year anniversary was yesterday of this 1.5 mile stretch of golden gate park JFK Promenade that is now, because of a vote of seven to four on the Board of Supervisors, a permanently car-free space, which is a huge victory. It feels so good to work so hard and to have uh, that it kind of still doesn't feel real because it was so much work and it felt like it was going to be impossible like that. Car-centric view of road usage could just not be transformed, and we won one little, one little spur. So come to San Francisco and come to the JFK Promenade and bring your bike or your feet, or you can rent bikes, uh, try an electric bike, try an electric scooter. Or just walk or run or whatever you want to do. Just don't bring your car, truck, or SUV because you're not allowed. They're not allowed on there. You can't do it. You can't do it. So 
One of the beautiful aspects of this Board of Supervisors meeting, I gather that wherever you live, there's probably some sort of local governance, local governing board. Aldermen here in San Francisco, it's supervisors, selectmen is another one. They divide the city into districts, and then each district votes on these supervisors to be their, like, the president of their district. There's 11 supervisors in San Francisco. So they had to vote on whether or not to keep this portion of the road as a permanent 24-7 car-free promenade, and the vote was 7-4, to four, so we won. But there was a 12-hour I mean, 12-hour meeting that the politicians speak, the people from Rec Park, SFMTA, which is the municipal transit people, give their presentations about equity studies and accessibility and what they're going to do with the space and all this stuff. And then they open it up for public comment. Yeah! yeah. Beautiful. <laughs> We're going to Thank you. Uh, hello, supervisors. My name is Sarah Katz-Hyman. I live in D5. And about two months ago, I proudly and openly enjoyed a Taco Bell picnic on a small patch of grass along car-free JFK. When cars lined JFK, this area was unnoticeable and unappealing, filled with exhaust, hardly a place to enjoy a Doritos Locos Tacos. We all deserve to eat Taco Bell out in the open, to have a Baja Blast in our own city, to have space where we can have a cheesy fiesta. Don't get it cinnamon twisted, this plan is the compromise on both safety and climate goals. For truly Nacho's Belgrande vision of the city, Carfree JFK is just the beginning. Every corner of SF deserves and needs Carfree spaces. To crunch wrap it up, I hope you all will have the vision to vote for more, a more climate friendly city, a more people first city, a more perfect, a more perfect future to live in, to live moss, to live more. Well, this comment may have been silly, Carfree JFK has a serious impact on San Francisco, and so can you with your vote for yes for Carfree JFK. Thank you. And that's what takes so long. It was 11 hours of public comment. Hours and hours and hours and hours of public comment. The beautiful part of it, though, was all of these people that share this city, that are neighbors, people that I will never meet, that I never know, that are just walking around at the grocery store around here. They're of all different backgrounds and ages and abilities. And you heard so many different accents and saw so many different colors and vibes of just this parade, this beautiful rainbow parade of diversity of human beings giving one minute testimony about this space. And someone crunched the numbers. It was 70% of the comments were pro keeping it as a promenade. It was 70-30, basically. 30% of the people wanted it reopened to cars, and 70% of the people wanted it to remain car-free. And even the people that were in opposition, it was wonderful to be like, okay, so there's one of my neighbors that really wants to drive there. And then all of the people that were in support of it, you had doctors, emergency room physicians, uh, public transit officials, like people that are studying public transportation, tons of moms holding their children. And then of course, uh, a singer-song cyclist showed up. Hello, my name is John Elliott. I live in District 1 in the outer Richmond. And I'd like to sing a song on behalf of the dwindling community of musicians in San Francisco and the 50% of San Franciscans who rent their homes and do not own a car. 
keep it car free so the kids can play car free to scoot and skate and ride car free so we all can have a place to safely move outside car free for a hundred years car free for a hundred more for you and me for them and they so everyone can get from a to b from jfk to the great highway keep it car free from jfk to the great highway keep it car free thank you thank you so much for the song so that was great and in the end we won we won this round and that just feels so cool for the world it feels so good for the world and i saw on twitter the next day people from san diego were saying oh my gosh we have to do this in san diego people from milwaukee i saw someone post something from milwaukee it's like this is great that's the idea is we just slow transformation and look, as a caveat, parenthetical aside, we have inherited a hundred years of car-dependent infrastructure, of choices that so many of us are forced into car dependency. So there's no judgment here if you are reliant on a car. I mean, I just the war on cars is not about that. It's just about creating a network of sustainable transit thoroughfares so that people have the option to mode shift or make different choices. And kids can ride their sweet scooters or like you can go for a sick skateboard ride. It's fun. It's just for fun. But also transportation. It's, it's not just for fun. It's serious. It's how I get my groceries. I haven't had a car for, for nine years now. I've not had a car for nine years now. So, okay. So, okay. That's enough of that. What are we doing today? This is a long audio, by the way. There's a lot. There's the a calendars are filling up. Like People are wanting happen. to do There's things. You're getting texts. They want to hang out. There's things feeling. happening. We're emerging from a season of rest. And I'm trying to remind myself. Right now, I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying engaging in this way. I loved my shows on the East Coast. I'm looking forward to more shows. I'm feeling it, and it's great to see people and connect with them and hug them and hear them play music. I've been loving seeing my friends play, going to shows. It's just been great. It's been wonderful. And in the midst of all that, I'm trying to remind myself to make space for peacefulness and rest and recovery from partying. and. I think that's really important. I think I at least learned a lot about how much of that I need and want in the last couple years. And I want to carry forth that, those new habits and that intention of striking a balance as we continue existing together on this planet. And one of the people that we share this planet with is the person that I'm, I just, I loved talking with this person. And that's what most of this audio is going to be today. Bobby Joe Valentine. And I'm just, I will let him speak for himself. When you hear, I just love over and over again in this conversation, I'll say something and I'll think that I know what Bobby's going to say, or I just have an idea for where the conversation is going to go. And Bobby just grabs it and pulls it 
way over here and shows me a room that I didn't even know was there of ways to think about things. We get into theology, we get into the Lord, we get into performing naked, uh, we get into all kinds of depression. Trigger warning. We talk about suicide, we talk about depression in this discussion. Hopefully in an illuminating, loving, tender, gentle, helpful, positive way. So I just love Bobby. I met him when we played a show together when I first moved up to San Francisco. And I've just loved his spirit and loved his energy ever since I met him. He always makes me feel hopeful and optimistic. And his music has that effect too. So go to your streaming methodology of choice and listen to some Bobby Joe Valentine if you want your heart warmed and your spirit lifted. And here is my conversation with Bobby Joe Valentine. Check, check, check. What's up, dude? <laughs> oh, man. I've just been listening to the most recent album, and I'm just like filled with hope, Bobby. Oh, hooray. <laughs> you've, done the, you've done your job. <laughs> my mischief worked. <laughs> <laughs> hey, so wait a minute. Tell me about your gallbladder. I've been doing some research. My gallbladder. Are you okay? Yes, yes. It looks like you had a journey, a health journey. Yeah, it was insane. Uh, it was, yeah, it was right after like depressive mode I was in for a while. And so, as you know, there's a lot of prone position <laughs> experience on flat on your bed when you are going through that. And so I think that probably wasn't good for whatever was going on in there. Oh, wow. So that was related. That's I didn't even put those two together when I saw it. I would guess it. No one said that to me. But like, I also think like a doctor feels bad saying like, well, you know, lying in your bed for 12 hours probably doesn't help your digestion. <laughs> yeah. Just an awkward thing for a doctor to have to tell you. <laughs> like, <laughs> Doctors. What was it? It's Yeah, I don't even know. What does a gallbladder do? Apparently, it holds the extra bile that goes through your system. So like the liver turns like extra fat and like alcohol stuff into a bile and then it processes it. But sometimes there's a little too much and the gallbladder is literally just like an extra holder. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't process it at all. It's just this like companion piece to the bile, but you don't actually need it. You just can watch a little bit your content of how like much you're eating at one time. Yeah. Uh, so you don't you don't actually need it, and a gallbladder can sometimes take all that bile and like turn it into little stones because it thinks it's being helpful that way. But that's that's where you get in trouble is oh. you start building up this hard stuff inside you that doesn't loose that that doesn't loosen. So I had a bunch of them. In my gallbladder. Wow, that's also kind of a beautiful metaphor for keeping hard stuff inside of you and not loosening it, right? Yeah, I, totally, hundred percent. It was great. They took they took it out um, in like two hours. They knocked me out for it. That was crazy. They call it milk of amnesia, the thing that they used to put me under milk of amnesia. <laughs> I've, that's crazy. I've never had that. I'm kind of scared of that. Like, did you count backwards and then just next thing you know, you woke up? They didn't even count me back. They like wheeled me into the surgery room. There was like a long period where they just like, I think, let me get comfortable with the bed and less. I was never anxious, but like for other patients, like the less anxious, getting less anxious. 
And then I started to get anxious when I got in the surgery room, just because they're wheeling you. And it's like, you know, the thing you see in hospital shows where the shot is with you looking up at the hallway ceilings. So it's just a weird perspective to wander through. And then I got in the surgery room and everyone was so nice. They were like joking with each other. Every single piece of their energy was like, this is not a big deal. We've got you. This is going to be fun. And then I was gone. It was like 30 seconds of fun little banter and not even a countdown. And then I woke up uh, in the hospital at the like little recovery section. Crazy. How long was that then? I think the whole experience was like five and a half hours. And then the surgery itself was like, uh, like just an hour and a half to two hours. Wow, Bobby. Yeah. Um, On your Facebook page, but the way you said it, you had this pain and you were thinking, come on, just handle it. It'll go away. Yes, exactly. Yeah. We have this in our culture. It's like, just get over it. Just get over it. Whatever it is, you know, like, oh, it's all, you know what? Take a day, get over it. Exactly. You know, you'll get through it. And it's like, geez, you know, like we don't allow ourselves time to recover or get ill and then get well. We just don't have patience for that. Yeah, totally. And there's there's such a thing, you know, like there's so many hoarders in America. And I think the reason there's so many hoarders in America is the idea that, yeah, you should either handle the thing or you should just leave it alone and maybe it'll go away. But heaven forbid you actually remove the thing that's causing you pain from your life. Whoa. Yeah. Storage facilities. Exactly. Storage facility. You're not using it? 150 bucks a month, baby. Yeah. Oh my we'll God. Take Those care things of that kill shit. me. They kill me. <laughs> I mean, you never get, oh God. Yeah. So a gallbladder is a storage facility. Right. Right. That's what it is. It does. It has no other use other than to store this thing. And then it does this fun thing where if you're eating something that has direct fat, like cheese or something, the gallbladder constricts. It like squeezes. It's just a thing it does. There's no reason that it does it. But when it has its gallstones that it's made, it squeezes. And that's where a gallbladder attack comes in. Oh, and that's what you had? I had 12 of them, John. And oh they are God. and they are supposed to be top three in human pain threshold. And that includes, that list includes childbirth. So I'm sure childbirth is like number one, but like gallbladder is three, man. And I had 12 before I finally gave it up. Oh my God, Bobby. <laughs> That's how stubborn I was. It was yeah, <laughs> geez. Wow. Well, now you know you're capable of withstanding that degree of pain 12 times. Exactly, yeah. And as far as I know, like until surgery changes, you know, childbirth isn't an option for me. It's like a male-born body. So uh-huh. <laughs> that's gone. So whatever the second one is, but I think the second one is like penis sprain. And I just, you know, I feel <laughs> and I feel pretty confident that I'm not going to put myself in any like penis spraining environments. So I don't know. I penis I'm- sprain feel that feels more likely to me than uh, <sighs> you call yourself a hopeful earthbound singer songwriter. I love that. Oh, thanks, man. <laughs> I love that. What's the earthbound part about? Well, I think that I grew up in church where, like, there was a saying in church where it was like, you're so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. Whoa. Oh, my God. Say that again. You're so heavenly minded 
that you're of no earthly good. Of no earthly good. So, so first off, yeah, so toxic because it's it's an it's an either or like uh, uh, ultimatum statement, right? It's it's, but <sighs> but the other thing that it put me in was like, it definitely made me more aware. Here's the gift I'm taking away. It definitely made me more aware of like people that could get so wrapped up in like the mystical ideas of things that they don't like sit down and like make a thing to help the world with their idea, you know? Um, oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Right on. The, I, I heard this thing that really struck me that um, people who are so far on the church evangelical, mm -hmm. uh, there's an infinite life after this. And so really this life presently doesn't even really matter that much. It's kind of like a means to an end. Mm, there yeah. is equally unhelpful to us as anarchists that are like, burn it all down, forget it, it's all a mat. It's like neither of them are helping us here in the present moment trying to build a world that is just yeah. kind. Yes. It's like, all right, but what are we going to do in the meantime, you know? Yeah. And, and you can get like, you can get messages from heaven and how I translated that now is like, I don't know, synchronous moments where you feel a reminder that you're connected to everyone and everything you interact with you. There is a weird connection and a lot of it's invisible. And that does make it interesting and meaningful in a way beyond just our physical sight and sense and smell, you know? So like you can get those universe awakenings and you can mistranslate them. And so I feel like a lot of people that are heavenly minded, their danger too, is they can get it and they can want to be earthly good, but they mistranslate it. And they're like, you know, hey, I'm getting a really interesting message for crystals. Well, that means my crystals can cure, cure your cancer. That would be a mistranslate, probably a mistranslation. You know? Wow, I've never heard that mistranslation. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, because you can have a mystical spiritual experience. And then you can call that Christ, or you can call that whatever you want to call that, basically. I mean, how whatever your frame of philo philosophy is, is how you're going to interpret that experience. Yeah. You said, this is great, since you brought up the church thing. Born into a Baptist church of strict lines and sharp edges. I love that. <laughs> And coming out of that, coming out of that culture to discover who you really are. Who are you really? What did you learn? Oh, man. I mean, well, geez, Bobby. <laughs> what, a, what a journey that is. It's been, yeah, yeah. I think, you know, discovering who you really are is interesting because that can sort of imply that, like, like I just abandoned everything I grew up with. But But you are the sum of, like, what you were born in and how you're believing. So now that I'm on the other side of it, I used to just like push it away. But now I'm like, no, I'm like, I'm a little Baptist boy who grew up, you know, and, and I grew up. And some, we all know, some adults never grow up. Like some adults stay in the thing they were as a kid and they just, they never leave their hometown. They never leave their parental trauma. They just like keep... And I was really fortunate. I had someone that loved me like back to life after coming out as gay in the Baptist world and losing everything. I had someone like my first partner, John, like really loving, really beautiful, safe 
space for me to start finding like who I was again. And and first it was everything new. It was songwriting. It was, uh, I had to go find a job <laughs> that wasn't churchy because I was a music director before I came out. Oh, wow. Yeah. At a church. So wait, you say you lost everything. Was that literally because you came out as gay, all of your relationships and all of your professional Baptist relationships were severed? Yes, like all my professional Baptist relationships, sure. That 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 totally is true. And then even the relationships I have now forever changed. Like here's an example, um, many of them. So I, everything is, is hyperbole. Uh, I'm so grateful to have kept like my brother, like our friendship stayed. I came out to him and he like, even though he'd grown up in the Baptist stuff, he'd done his own, um, you know, like reimagining of, and by the time I got to him, he like, it's it still was in him like the homophobia, but he like got drunk. <laughs> <laughs> nice. He, he literally like he I told him he thought I was like fibbing or joking with him, and then when he realized I wasn't joking, he was like, "Hold on, I gotta go." <laughs> he, he drives. I was at his house, and he drives away, and he goes gets gets uh, the cheapest large amount of strong liquor he could get, gets drunk, and then through slurred speech, it's just like. You're my bro, dude. I'll always love you. Never stop loving you. Like, that's oh, never going to stop. Good job, brother. So, good so job. He, he killed it. He, he's an amazing dude. So oh. kept him. Um, and, and that relationship didn't, didn't change. But that might be the only one that, like, didn't. Yeah. Now that I'm thinking about it. That's the only one that didn't change. I didn't lose my parents' relationship. But, like, when I came out as gay... I forever changed in their minds to the son that we love who would be even better if he wasn't gay. Right. Yeah. There's like an asterisk next to it or something. An asterisk. That's a perfect way to say it. I became our beloved son asterisk. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) What is that about? I, I don't know. I mean, I grew up Catholic um, and I never really bought it. But, and I guess Catholics are against, I guess they have a problem with homosexuality, but what is the Baptist objection? Is it just that it's wrong? Is it, what's the biblical textual basis for that belief? There's a couple verses in the Bible. Like there's one in Leviticus that says like, hey, if a man lies with another man, that's an abomination. That's like the big launching point for a lot of people as you grow older and I went through four years of Bible college and still believed it by the way you can go through years of education and not get another perspective but as I grew older and actually looked back on it and looked into like real Jewish scholars that knew their shit and all sorts of stuff they're just like yeah that's talking about like pagan idol worship and that was like a Israelite culture saying like hey there's these pagan temples where women lie with women men lie with men and People lie with women and men as a sex sacrifice to this God. And oh, in the in that world of Leviticus, you know, they, they were trying to do a new thing. And so they were like, probably not the healthiest sexual ethic to like make it an offering to an to a to the idea of a deity instead of like keeping it as a expression of love. So so don't do that. Wow. Like in and in the world of like man lying with another man, it's like that was in the world of Leviticus where they're like, here's our temple. Here's our temple. Here's what you do in our temple. And here's what you don't do in our temple. And in our temple, 
you don't go in and like it's not a bathhouse like in our temple right. <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately I mean, no, I'm unfortunately but like, <laughs> you're like why not what's the problem exactly jeez doesn't um, leviticus also have ridiculous aren't there like ridiculous things in that same passage though about like um wearing cloths of two different fibers or something oh yeah in the same like chapter yeah yeah same exactly chapter yeah don't eat shrimp okay. i mean <laughs> Also abomination. Also an abomination. Right. Yeah. So the, why are people? The, the God, we are real. so. Our culture's problem with sex is so mysterious. I mean, it's just maybe it's because it's so powerful. Any entities of power fear its power. Maybe exactly. that's what it is. Like the church fears the power of of sexual connection because, I mean. It's kind of better than church. It's the best. Yeah, it's the closest. I think it's, in my experience, other than like really good, um, <laughs> really good psychedelic substances. <laughs> in my experience, with the exception of those, sex is probably the closest like moment where you get a clue that like you're the thing. Whoa, say that you're the thing. You're the divine. Like it's the right thing where you can get out of your um, concern about everyone else and what everyone else needs and the messages you think everything else is sending you and what you should and shouldn't be doing and all that childhood shit. And, and when you can be like, oh, I'm okay as I am. I can do what I want and it can be a good thing. What I yeah. want can be a good thing. Like sex is where you get to explore all that stuff. It's primal Wait, and yeah. it's also very present. There it's very like mm, yeah. happening right now. Uh, yeah, I've always wondered that. Why why does church get why do the why do the different churches get weird about? God, so how hard is that to have and you went through Bible school believing that? Oh and yeah. but still being attracted to men? Yeah, like I you know. I didn't have anywhere to put it. It was so well, I was so well sheltered that even when I like started having like, you know, impulses and stuff, my brain like couldn't even put it. Like my parents didn't even have a conversation about the birds and bees with me. Yeah. They didn't have, I didn't have that either. So yeah. I didn't even have the concept of like insertion and friction. And like- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, to this day, Bobby, I've never discussed anything related to sex with my parents. None not, of the physics. Not a word, not a single yeah. word. <laughs> None of the physics are, were clear to me by the time that I realized that like I had something down there that I like to play with. Right. And the so physics. like, exactly. So it's like, so your brain does all sorts of weird things to fill in the gaps when no one is teaching you that stuff. Yeah. So, so yeah. So like, yeah, my fantasies were weird and vague and, and I'm sure would make me blush if I thought about them now. Um, but wouldn't they, for all of us, I hope in our adolescence, we can admit to that kind of silliness. But when I, when I went to college, I noticed that like specifically for whatever reason, I was attracted to older men and it was like authority figures in the college, like the Dean of men and like people like that. I, I found like peers, no sexual attraction, whatever, whatsoever. And for whatever reason, older guys, I connected to that. So yeah, like I would like. I would keep that in my head and I would keep that in a really small compartment of like my like secret, you know, world. But I, yeah, I never, there wasn't any actual experimentation with like actual guys when I was in college or anything. 
Wow. But that's just such a incongruous. I mean, it really is interesting actually to hear you talk about it for me, Bobby, because if you just take me as a cisgendered white man, you know, every program I'm getting from the TV, every movie, every every prom date, everything, it's it's in line with what I'm feeling and developing. Mm. You know, so it's like, ooh, my, you know, I remember looking at, uh, I won't say the name. Let's call her Susan. I remember looking at <laughs> Susan's ankles in eighth grade in springtime and just being like. Why am I into those ankles? You know, like just something's <laughs> going on here. But it's like that was just allowed to be fully present because that was what boys, boys and girls, you know. Yeah, it was still also subtly suggested on the Wednesday night Catholic school hangs that like that was bad or something or I shouldn't, you shouldn't do it, do anything about that, which is just bizarre, but. You shouldn't do anything about that. Or whatever. Yeah. Like I yeah, yeah. I remember this horribly produced movie. This is so funny. <laughs> I haven't thought of this in forever. It was like really poorly made movie that they showed us that's like, you know, a young girl and a young guy in a in like a car, but the car was just like two folding chairs, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but it was like the end of a date or something, and uh-huh. they were like gonna go kiss and then it like paused. And this person's like, like, don't, that leads to other things that are ungodly, you know, wow. don't, don't do that. Instead of like, there comes the fear, like, right. just like, an, like a literal injection, like here's yeah. the fear. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So much so that when I got, when I was in Cinderella in 10th grade, I was so excited that I didn't have a role that had to kiss anybody. And my oh. friend Nate had to do, he was the prince. He had to kiss the girl and i was like that just is terrifying like how do you oh my god he's gonna have to kiss in front of everybody you know yeah oh my goodness okay can i tell you one of my favorite song lyrics ever um is by death cab for cutie and it's Ooh. their song i will follow you into the dark that's a great one it's a great one and it's one of my favorite parts is its second verse because it totally is like it doesn't seem to have anything to do with what he's talking about. And yet it has everything to do with what he's talking about. And those are the best verses that I like find in songs I'm listening to. And and when I write, I love those verses because you can't take like, it's so non sequitur that you can only wonder at your brain's power to, you know, put this. So anyway, this song, his second verse, and this is with your Catholicism. He says in Catholic school, as oh, vicious yeah. as Roman rule, I got my knuckles bruised by a lady in black. I held my tongue as she told me, son, fear is the heart of love. Yeah. So I never went back. Yeah. And it's like, well, by itself, that is a powerful poem. Like you could put it. Like, yeah. Fear is the heart of love. So I never went back. Like what a good mission statement, by the way. What if you walk through life and you're like, if fear is at the heart of this, I'm not going to like, bye. You know, like just, I'm going to let go of it. Yeah. Wait, now I'm really thinking about that line for the first time. I've always, that line's always struck me, but I'm, I'm trying to think about it. So the Catholic lady says to him, fear is the heart of love. And he doesn't believe that, so he doesn't go back. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. What is that even? 
fear is the heart of love. But that's what, yeah, tell me what that means. Yeah, I'll give you a Bible verse that that um, perfectly parallels why it is a, a, a struggle, a temptation that Baptist churches fall into to think that fear is the heart of love. There's a, ba- a Bible verse that we use a lot in the Baptist world, used, I'm not, <laughs> not a part of it anymore, but, and it's called, it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. <laughs> Oh my God. Yeah, yeah. It's like in the Bible. And <laughs> yeah, God fearing good God fearing Christians. But what here's here's the the other way you can look at it, and here's how what a Jewish scholar would say is like the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Like it's the be like congratulations that that stovetop hurt when you put your hand on it, didn't it? The lesson starts there, and the next lesson is really easy. Don't put your hand on the like. That's the that's the most novice way to be wise. Fear is like the primitive instinct to run away from what you from what hurts you, or from what could hurt you. Right. Right. So God could hurt you. It's like okay. It's like a high dive. And it's like, God is like a high dive to me. And like the sacred call of deeper life in every day is like a high dive. You get up there and it's terrifying, your first high dive. And like you get up there and you're looking over the edge and it's genuinely scary because you have never fallen that far and had it not hurt you. And so you're up on that high dive and you're like, holy shit. And then you, you make the jump. And you get in the water and it's this, it's like jumping in a firework. It's like, bam, explosion, sound, submersion, and you're fine. And you break up out of the water. And what's the first thing you think? I want to do that again. (laughs) But you were, but, but, but the start of it was you being afraid. And then I mean, what's think, funny about that example, I've never done, gone off a high dive. Oh, wow. I'm afraid of it. I was so afraid of it when I was a kid. And we used to go to this pool and there was the high dive and I never went off it. My sister went off it all the time. My, I get, my partner, Tim Selig, gets credit for that. He used that metaphor with me one time talking about fear. And it was just perfect, especially for us Baptist people, because we were taught to not just run away from fear, but to condemn the things that caused us fear to justify the avoidance or condemnate or, or, or pushing away of anything that caused us fear. And now the older that I get, I'm just like, you can exchange the emotion of fear for like kind of a combination of curiosity and delight and surprise. And yeah, you can be is, like, I've never heard fear. Sorry, I interrupted you. Oh, no I've never heard fear connected to religion in this way and belief and faith in this way. It's really interesting. Yeah, it's um, it was the baseline of my faith was um, we, we are this tight a group. We are this tight a nuclear family. We are this tight a church family that doesn't talk to any other churches or faiths. We're this tight, tight of a group because everything else is potentially harmful. Wow. Do you, do you ever, did you ever play video games? Do you yeah. still play video games? Yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I like need to get the... back into it. I, I've, uh, 
I don't have the, I need to get back into the presence of mind even to be able to concentrate enough to enjoy a video game for 30 minutes and not think of other things I need to be doing. Um, but there's a video game called Fallout 3. Uh-huh. You know this game? I don't know it. I don't know it. Oh I've my heard of it. The whole story is like you wake up from, you know, a typical day and the, the start of Fallout 3 is you wake up in a typical day and you're in a bunker. And all these people around you are just talking. It's just what they do. Go to the bunker. You're like a, you know, 18 year old. You're about to graduate from bunker school and your whole life you've been in this bunker and you go to class and they're teaching you about what happened outside. A giant nuclear war happened outside and everything outside the bunker is gone and the air isn't breathable and there's no one there. And the only people that aren't, that are safe, the only people that are safe are here in this bunker and the only air that's safe is in this bunker and the only world that's safe is in this bunker. So you just go throughout your day and you're playing this game for the first time and you're like, I guess, is this going to be my whole, why is everyone saying this is such a great game? This is like, am I just, and then something happens, some interior like conflict happens and it's like a murderous conflict. It's like violence and intensity and all of a sudden, the bunker is no longer safe. So you're like, shit, the bunker's not safe, and the world outside's not safe, but I'm going to die if I stay in the bunker because of this conflict that happened. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just, like, open the door, and you open cool. the door to the I'm bunker. I'm so into it. I'm you so into it. open the door to the bunker, and you walk outside, and the light blinds you almost as if a nuclear bomb was happening right now you just get this giant flash of light it makes your ears ring so it's light and sound and then your eyes adjust and you can breathe and the whole world was like yes it was broken yes it's a mess yes it was dangerous but like you're alive and fine outside the bunker wow and it's a it's a perfect allegory for for life in general but for what happened with me like yeah that sounds t i just totally felt that yeah yeah like i was in the bunker like the baptist world i grew up in was the bunker where everything was fine as long as i stayed in it and i stayed in it as long as i could yeah until i like finally realized like whoa this being gay is a huge piece of not just me but like my story how i tell a story is i try to tell the whole story and i can't be an artist and just like be living a daily life of not living my full story like that wouldn't that wouldn't no, work and that wouldn't work so when i came out that's when the bunker became lethal yeah you know what I mean? It was just yeah. very clear that I was not going to survive in the bunker anymore. And it was just like, okay, I guess I'm going to die. Bye. <laughs> wow. I mean, you mentioned this a little bit at the top. We can, this seemed like a good time to get into the depression stuff a little bit because oh, yeah. that's what the bunker also feels like. Mm, I mean, yeah. I, I want to, I want to hear yeah. you talk about what your experiences through that is, are like, because I think everybody's are different to some extent, but when what you just described that's 
what it feels like to emerge from a depression to me is it's just like, it's like, oh, ah, melon, watermelons are great. Right. <laughs> you know? Oh, I have friends and they're great and they're nice. Oh, it's nice to go for a walk. Yeah. You no, know, it's like, wait, it's like, what was I doing? Oh, yeah, I was working on this thing. You know, but you're, I wonder if it's connected to that concept of fear or something. It's like you shut down and you close off. Yeah. And I don't know what that's about. I remember one of your posts, like, you know, um, when you started getting out and traveling again and, and talking about it a bit on social media and stuff, you just had this post that was so wonderful because you're just talking about like a bike ride you did and how fun it was. But one detail you were like, especially like excited to talk, clearly like overjoyed to talk about was how delicious like this pan, these pancakes were. <laughs> And it was like, you were just like, yeah, the bike ride was great. Yeah, it was like 26 miles, whatever. But like this pancake that I just had in my mouth. Your pan, well, that's what, that was a revelation because I was like doing these long rides and just like getting exhausted. And I finally went on the Reddit uh, cycling board and I was like, what do you guys eat? Like, I'm, I'm getting so tired. Yeah. And they're like, that's what carbohydrates and sugar are for. That's what they're for. Eat carbohydrates eat sugar they're like eat pancakes it's oh like the next day i goodness. had i was like yeah you, you worry about pancakes because you know i mean old getting older you know you know you want to watch your watch your figure a little bit if you're going to be a performer so too many pancakes you know but then it's like oh i'm supposed to eat pancakes you know so the next yeah. day i had like a i had like a pile of pancakes 50 miles no problem <laughs> Literally, it was like the fuel was on the fire, and I was just going. Oh, it's like your for, your friends gave you permission for pancakes. <laughs> totally, yeah. Like, don't worry about it. Eat pancakes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs>